Well, good morning, Sovereign Grace, and, and welcome to my home library where I am I'm bringing to you the Word of God, really from the book of Hebrews, chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, really picking up where we left off a couple of weeks ago, albeit in different circumstances, but yet God's Word remains the same. So let's look at Hebrews 7. I'm just going to read Hebrews 7, 1 through 10, and then we'll begin to look at the text together. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham, and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks for your word. We give thanks for the certainty of your word in uncertain times. We give thanks that your your Holy Spirit superintended the word um, that we read here in Hebrews, not only for the Hebrew Christians in the first century, but for your church in every age, including your church right now. Father, we pray that your spirit would give us ears to hear what he's saying to the churches, that you would be honored as we consider your son, our eternal priest after the order of Melchizedek. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are in a time in which the three offices of our Lord Jesus Christ is really existentially a more acute treasure than in times of prosperity. Christ is presented to us in the New Testament as our prophet, our priest, and our king. These are his three offices. Now, what are these offices? Well, the king is the one who rules. Jesus holds the office of the king. As the eternal son of God, he has the divine right to be king. As the messianic son of David, he was appointed to be such, and that was given to him by his father. He received the kingdom from his father, and he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, from where he rules and reigns. That is his office as the king. The prophet is one who speaks on behalf of God to men. So it's God speaking to us as men. When the prophet speaks, God is speaking. And Christ 
is the Word of God. He reveals God to us. All the other prophets spoke the Word of God, but Christ is the Word of God. Third, the office of priest. The priest is the one who mediates between man and God. So the prophet speaks on behalf of God to man. The priest mediates between man and God. Where the prophet is speaking from God to us, the priest is going before us and taking us to God. He is the head, the leader, the captain, the forerunner. He stands at the head of others and mediates our approach to God. This is why the priest must be a man who shares our infirmities, who is like us. Listen to what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 5, 1 and 2. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed, is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. If you will, the priest who represents us as one of us leads us to salvation, to union and communion with God. By treading, he does that by treading the path of salvation before we do and carrying us along with him. He is the forerunner who leads and opens our access to God, but also who enjoys, himself enjoys the access that he mediates to us. Look at Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. See, he has gone before us and enjoyed that glory before us and led us into it. Look at Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So he became like us in taking flesh and blood to himself, and then he suffered death for us and delivered us. Look at Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 15. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So he, our great high priest, has passed through the heavens. And therefore he has led us to God and is taking us with him. And he has sympathized with us in our weakness in that he was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Now look at Hebrews 5 and 7 through 10. In the days of his flesh, that is during his incarnate life here on earth, prior to the resurrection and, the, and ascension, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect or consecrated, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a priest, a high priest, after the order of Melchizedek. 
So he was saved by God, and he carried us into that same salvation. Now, he was not saved from his own sins, but saved from the penalty of our sins by God, and he's resurrected, and he carries us to heaven. Now, look at Hebrews chapter 6 and verses 19 through 20. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Note what all this language is saying. Jesus is our high priest. He is the eternal Son of God who took humanity to himself that he might represent us and be our mediator between the fa- before the Father. And Jesus led the way. Jesus was tempted as we are, yet without sin. He led the way to God for us in his law-keeping life. Jesus suffered and died just as we will. He bore the penalty of death for us. He led the way to God for us in his sin-atoning death. Jesus entered glory with the Father. He now dwells with the Father in perfect communion. He led the way for us in his grave-conquering resurrection and ascension. And what is remarkable is it says, is what it says in Hebrews 6.20, when Jesus has gone, where Jesus, sorry, where Jesus has gone, as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is our forerunner to heaven. He's run ahead of us, to heaven, and he is carrying us there with him. He has entered in and enjoyed communion with God, and we are guaranteed entry with him, as he has anchored us in heaven with him. He is our anchor in heaven as our forerunner, precisely because he continues as our priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Pay attention to that. Jesus remains a high priest forever. He is a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Therefore, he is the high priest forever. Now, Hebrews goes on to tell us about Melchizedek, and and I dealt with him um, some two weeks ago. But I want to look specifically at verse 4 through 10 in Hebrews chapter 7, and just pick up there. We left off there last week, and I want to pick up there this week. In verse 4, we're given a command. And we're given an interesting command this morning, really, that I want to look at and consider with you, and really urge you to obey this morning. Look at Hebrews 7, 4. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 4. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. Now that word see that begins verse 4, I don't consider the most helpful translation because you don't recognize that you're being commanded necessarily to do something in English there, but you are. You're being commanded, a better translation is probably consider. It's an imperative verb that means consider, think about, observe, contemplate. Contemplate, consider, observe, meditate upon how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. 
Think about that. We're being told to contemplate, to consider, to observe, to think about Melchizedek. Namely, we're to consider how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. After all, Jesus, Hebrews has just said that about Jesus um, that we're being commanded, or excuse me, that he is after the order of Melchizedek, and now we're being commanded to meditate on Melchizedek. And I guess the question we need to ask is, why are we being commanded to meditate on Melchizedek? Why does the author of Hebrews want the Hebrew Christians to meditate upon Melchizedek? Now, you might be wondering a second thing, which is, why are you going to preach on this in the midst of a global crisis? We're in the midst of not just a national crisis, but a global crisis. So why would I turn you to a command in Hebrews 7.4 to contemplate some guy named Melchizedek when we face such uncertainty with regard to our future? See, if COVID-19 hits here like it has in northern Italy, we're talking about a serious health crisis. Even if our measures to stop COVID-19 work, we are potentially talking about an economic crisis worse than the 2008, 2008 and 2009 downturn. And here, in the midst of all that, I'm turning you to a passage that says, let's slow down and think about Melchizedek. And the reason I want to do that is so you might consider what is the really good news in the midst of all this. The really good news is not that some medical professionals might find a quick solution. Though if they did, we would give thanks to the Lord for that. The really good news is not that some politician might find a way to economic salvation. Though if they did, we would obviously give thanks to the Lord for that. The really good news is not what I've been hearing lots of people saying. All will be well. There's nothing to fear. Or everything will turn out okay in the end. Or turn out for the best. Now listen, those are prosperity gospels that Americans tell one another. We don't know any of that. We have no idea what the Lord has in store for us in the here and now. The really good news is not any of that stuff. The really good news is something far more weighty, ultimate, and eternal. The really good news I want to look at this morning is really found in contemplating Melchizedek. Why? What do we learn from Melchizedek? Why are we being commanded to observe, contemplate, meditate upon, think about Melchizedek? I want to posit that we learn two truths in contemplating Melchizedek. First, we learn that Christ is an eternal priest. And second, we learn that Christ has always been committed to blessing his people. So let's look at the first truth that we learn from contemplating Melchizedek. First, Christ is an eternal priest. 
Note the arguments flow in Hebrews. Look at Hebrews 7 and verse 4. See or observe or contemplate or think about how great this man, now this man is Melchizedek, Melchizedek, how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. Consider Melchizedek, who must be great. Melchizedek must be great because Abraham, the patriarch, the father of us all, the one with whom God covenanted, Abraham, that one, he tithed to Melchizedek. We know this is true because the one who holds the office of priests, of the priests, sorry, receives tithes from others. And because that's true, that he receives tithes from others as the one who holds the office of priest, he is greater by office than those from whom he receives the tithe. In fact, Hebrews argues this principle can be proven from the Mosaic Covenant. Look at Hebrews 7, 5. And those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. Notice this. The Levites are greater than their brothers by office. They are one of the twelve tribes of Israel who descend from Abraham. But they are greater than their brothers, the other tribes, by office. The Levites are the tribe who are set apart under Moses to the office of priest. As priests, they are greater in office, though they are of the same family as all the rest of Abraham's offspring. Thus the Levites receive a tithe from their brothers. Now, now given what's true with Levites, consider again that Melchizedek, who is not descended from the Levites, and thus must be a wholly different kind of priest, Melchizedek received tithes from Abraham himself. Look at Hebrews 7 and verse 6. But this man, that being Melchizedek, who does not have his descent from them, that being the Levites, he's not descended from the Levites, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him, blessed Abraham, who had the promises. Not only did Abraham tithe to Melchizedek, but Melchizedek blessed Abraham. And this means Melchizedek must be greater than Abraham. Look at verse 7. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. Abraham is the one to whom God made the covenant promises. God promised to bless Abraham and all the nations in him. His seed, Abraham's offspring, would be the seed of the woman promised in Genesis 3.15, the Messiah, who would reverse the effects of the fall, who would remove the curse of sin and death and separation from God, and who would bring us the blessing of forgiveness, holiness, life, and communion with God. Abraham is the one who received those promises from God. And yet Abraham is found tithing to Melchizedek and being blessed by Melchizedek. That's remarkable. Think about how great Melchizedek must be. Contemplate that. But, but let's carry Melchizedek's greatness a step further. 
Look at Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 8. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, or men who die. But in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. You see, the Levites were mortal men. This is quite literally translated, men who died. Their priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, ended with their death, and then it was passed on to their son. But it is testified that Melchizedek lives. Abraham tied to a priest and was blessed by a priest of whom it is testified that he lives. Now this does not mean that Melchizedek himself never experienced physical death. It means that we have no record of his death. And that's intentional. What he's saying is, the author of Hebrews is telling you that the Holy Spirit intentionally superintended that Moses would not give us a record of his death. Look at Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 3. He, that being Melchizedek, is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. What Hebrews is saying is that Genesis, by the superintendence of the Holy Spirit, gave us no genealogy from Melchizedek. And that is remarkable in a book that is organized around ten genealogies. Hebrews is also saying that that Genesis gave us no information about Melchizedek's birth, nor Melchizedek's death. We have no idea how long he lived which is also remarkable in a book like Genesis, which is constantly telling us how many years someone lived for. If you go through the book of Genesis, the standout characters in Genesis, you know who their father and often who their mother is, you know their genealogy, and you know how long they lived for. But none of that do we know in the case of Melchizedek, who is greater than Abraham. Why? Why are we not told that? If this man is so great that even Abraham tithed to him and was blessed by him, then why does Genesis leave out that information? Why does Moses not record that for us? Why did the Holy Spirit superintend that we would not know that information? Well, the author of Hebrews tells us, because Melchizedek was given, look at verse 3, but resembling the Son of God, because Melchizedek was given to resemble the Son of God, And in this way, he continues a priest forever. So we need to slow down here and think about this. Generally, generally, when we talk about types and shadows, we think horizontally through history. So we have a type, King David, and we are looking at him as a picture of his coming greater son, the Messianic King. And so when the anti-type, Jesus, the one who fulfills that type, comes, we see that the anti-type, Jesus, is greater than the type, King David. But what we are seeing is a human type in history with King David being fulfilled in the incarnate Christ in history when Christ comes as the son of Abraham and the son of David. This type with Melchizedek, though, is different. See, David, it's all horizontal history. David, a figure in history, fulfilled in Christ, a figure in history. 
But with Melchizedek, the type is not horizontal and historical. The type is vertical and eternal. Note that Melchizedek resembles the Son of God and thus continues a priest forever. This is not speaking about Melchizedek being a type of the Christ to come, though he is. He is a type of the Christ to come in history. So Melchizedek, in one sense, is a type of the Christ in history who is worked out horizontally, if you will, through history in the anti-type Christ. That's true. Type Melchizedek, anti-type Christ, historically and horizontally. However, what the passage is telling us here, what the author of Hebrews is telling us here, is something even behind that. And that's that there's a vertical typology happening here. That we're going, um, if you will, from the Son of God in heaven eternally to his type on earth in Melchizedek. He was given by God to picture. Melchizedek was given by God to picture the Son of God, the eternal priest king who would come in history as Jesus of Nazareth. In other words, Melchizedek represents the Son of God who is in heaven before his incarnation, before Abraham was. I am, Jesus says. In Psalm 110.4, we're told that the Father, in eternity past, decreed that the Son is priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In other words, Jesus is not a priest in the line of Levitical priests. They are just lesser pictures of what he will be. They are merely human priests. Their priesthood is temporary. Jesus is the eternal priest. He's not merely a man, though he is a man. He is also God. Jesus is the Son of God who took humanity to himself. Thus, he not only represents us as a man, he is God's eternally begotten Son who is our priest forever. And Melchizedek was sent to Abraham as a picture of the Son of God who is our eternal priest. And finally, we, we see one more interesting heightness of the greatening, excuse me, of the greatness of Melchizedek. Look at Hebrews 7 verses 9 and 10. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. For he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. See, Melchizedek was so great as a priest that even the Levites, the priests under the Mosaic Covenant, were tithing to him as they were in the loins of their father, Abraham. What is meant here? Abraham is the head, the representative of the covenant which includes his children. God said to Abraham, I will be God to you and to your children after you. Thus, Abraham represents his people. Abraham represents his children when he tithes to Melchizedek. When Abraham tithes to Melchizedek, he tithes to Melchizedek on behalf of the whole covenant people of God. That includes the Levites. Now, I want you to stop and, and just think about this. Let, let's do so by looking back at the scene in Genesis. Look with me at Genesis chapter 12. Keep your hand in Hebrews 7. But look back at, with me at Genesis chapter 12 
And let's look at the promise that God makes to Abraham. If you remember, Genesis chapter 12, and I know this sounds obvious, follows Genesis 1 through 11, but let's not lose sight of that, because Genesis 1 through 11 is a picture of the fall of the cosmos, of the fall of all mankind into sin, and the penalty of death that's coming for all mankind. And so when we get to Genesis chapter 12, and the picture or the story of Genesis narrows in on Abraham, it's doing so because it's cueing to you that Abraham is going to be the solution to all of this problem that we've just read about in Genesis really 3 through 11. So look what it says. Now the Lord, Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. See, he's going to make of Abraham a people. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, Abraham, all the families, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So these promises of God's blessing to reverse the curse, God's blessing to send the seed of the woman who would conquer the seed of the serpent, God's blessing to save us and restore to us eternal communion with him as his people in his place, really dwelling with him under his rule and blessing. Those promises are all given to Abraham. Now notice what it says in Genesis 14. Go forward. Abraham has um, just conquered some kings to save his nephew Lot. Four kings, in fact. And just after that, we pick up in Genesis 14 and verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Ketelamur and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. So he comes out to him with what looks like the Lord's Supper. Brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Let's, let's just stop and consider the scene for a minute, because it's remarkable. It's after this, Melchizedek leaves the scene, and we don't hear about him again, except in Psalm 110, as we're being promised something about what's coming with the Christ. But let's think about the scene for a minute. God has covenanted with Abraham. The blessing to all nations will come through Abraham's seed. Abraham, therefore, is the father of all who believe. He is the representative of God's people, of God's assembly, of God's church. And as the representative of God's church, he has visited Abraham as representing God's people, his church. He is visited by this mysterious high priest of God, this priest of who is the king of righteousness, we're told, the king of peace, who comes from Jerusalem, who comes bearing bread and wine. And this priest king is given to us to represent the eternal son of God, our eternal priest king. And this priest king, this one who represents the eternal son of God, comes to Abraham 
who represents God's people and blesses him. And Abraham, in response to this blessing, tithes to him. And then he's gone. And all we hear of him after this is that the son of David, the Messiah, the son of God, will come as the eternal priest after the order of Melchizedek because God has vowed to him, given him an oath, that you are the eternal priest after the order of Melchizedek. And here is what I hope you see happening in Hebrews 7.4 when he tells you to think about, when he commands you to contemplate to observe Melchizedek. He is telling you to think about how much greater Christ is as your high priest than any who came before him. Melchizedek was a picture of him. Christ was, is, and always will be your great high priest. He was your forerunner to heaven, and thus you are eternally anchored there with him. Look at Hebrews 7 and verse 23 through 25. The former priests, that's the Levitical priests, were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. They died, so their priesthood end when they died. So you have another one, so they're many in number. But he, that being Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently. Because, why does he hold his priesthood permanently? Because he continues forever. He's the eternal priest. Consequently, he is able, see, as a result of this, as a consequence of this, because this is true, that he is our eternal priest, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Do you hear the good news of having an eternal priest? No matter what is happening with the coronavirus, or the economy, or your fears and anxieties in the midst of all this, no matter what is happening with regard to your anxieties about government and whether it's overreaching or not, in spite of all that, in the face really of all that, you have an eternal priest. And thus, you have an eternal hope. You have one who is continually making intercession for you. One who can save you to the uttermost. You have one who's anchored you in heaven with him. He is your forerunner. He is able to be because he is the eternal son of God. But I want to draw out one more point that we learn from considering Melchizedek. We don't just learn that Christ is our eternal priest from considering Melchizedek. We learn something else from considering Melchizedek. I mean, we actually learn several things that we'll get to in the coming weeks. But one more I want to look at this morning. And that's this. This is the second point. Christ is eternally committed to blessing his people. I want you to hear that. Christ is eternally committed to blessing his people. We tend to use the word blessing 
um, frivolously, God bless you when someone sneezes. And we just, we just mean something like, may it be well with you or, or something like that. We could see on the face of a plague if we saw someone sneezing and we said, God bless you. We might, we might mean, may it be well with you in a very particular way that's even heightened over the kind of frivolity that we use when we say, God bless you today. But when we're saying that Christ is committed to blessing you, we're talking about the blessing that is the blessing of all blessings, which is communion with God, eternal life with him. Think of the beautiful picture of Melchizedek. Think of God's kindness to us from the beginning in the fact that he progressively reveals his eternal intentions to us, his plans, his promises. Melchizedek represents the eternal son of God who would come as our, as our priest king. And Melchizedek representing the eternal son of God who would come as our priest king shows up seemingly out of nowhere to bless Abraham. And Abraham, who's being blessed by Melchizedek, represents God's covenant people to whom God has made eternal promises. I, I don't know about you, but I'm personally, I'm taken with this. It's a remarkable scene to me, really, in Genesis 14. And the commentary that we're learning on it, about it from Hebrews 7. The Lord, in his kindness and grace, just drops in this picture, right into the middle of it, drops in this picture of Christ coming to bless his people and his people responding to such blessings with faith and obedience. That's what this scene with Melchizedek and Abraham represents. Melchizedek is a picture of the eternal Son of God, our eternal priest king, the king of righteousness and peace, the king who comes bearing bread and wine, who wants to commune with his people, the king who is come to bless us. Melchizedek represents Christ that way. And Abraham represents God's people with whom God has covenanted. And in this scene, Melchizedek shows up, blesses Abraham. Abraham responds really obediently with a tithe, trusting God's promises. And then Melchizedek disappears from the scene, not to be heard of really again. It's a remarkable scene in which we see early in the Bible Christ coming to bless his church. It was from this scene, and I dwell on this scene really, because it is from this scene that we learn that God was committed to our good from before the foundation of the world. It was the Father before the foundation of the earth, who covenanted with the eternal Son, and who vowed, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What did we do to merit such love and grace from the Father? We were not yet even born. We had not done anything either good nor bad. Yet God in his kindness, predestined to adopt us as sons in Christ, God did that, and God has sent his son for us while we were yet his enemies, still in our sin, rebels against his holy will. He did that because he loves us. 
It was the Son, before the foundation of the world, who joyfully received the oath of the Father, and who delighted in his mission to become incarnate as our eternal priest-king for us and our salvation. He delighted in redeeming us. Here's the question. What had we done other than sinned and rebelled and fled from him? Yet it was his joy to come and humble himself to seek and save the lost. It is his eternal pleasure to be our forerunner in the presence of the Father and to carry us with him there. It is his eternal delight to intercede on our behalf and to save us to the uttermost. It was the Holy Spirit who before the foundation of the world covenanted to apply the redeeming work of the Son to us. He progressively revealed God's good promise to us in the Word. He sent Melchizedek as a type to show us God's kind intention toward us. He empowered Christ to fulfill his mission. He is poured out on us to unite us to our eternal priest through faith. He indwells us and intercedes in us on our behalf. Our triune Lord, in other words, is eternally for us. He is good and promises our eternal good. Think about how great Melchizedek was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. Think long about him, and you will see, think long about him, and you will see the eternal loving kindness of God our Savior. Let me pray. Father, we give thanks for your kindness in giving us your Son. We give thanks for our eternal priest king, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We pray that we would contemplate him and the great hope and eternal salvation we know in him in the midst of difficult times, knowing that we are anchored with our forerunner in heaven, and he lives, ever lives, to intercede for us as our great high priest. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.